Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 6 of Revelation, where we've wrapped up our study of the horsemen, knowing that time is short, and asking the question, do you believe? So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, except when they really made you mad. He doesn't say that, does he? I, that's the one thing that just drives me crazy with Jesus. He just doesn't leave you a lot of loopholes. And he couldn't because he was dealing with the people who always found the loopholes, right? The Pharisees, that's all they did. Oh, they sounded good, but they always had a loophole to getting around what it is that was really the heart of the law. That was really the God's heart. Jesus never did that. His statements were simple. Hey, love your enemies. I mean love them. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Doesn't mean you got to hang out with your enemies. Doesn't mean you got to hug your enemies. Doesn't mean you got to go reveal yourself to your enemies so they can hurt you more. But what it means is love your enemies. Don't take things into your own hands to dealing with them. It's not for you to do. Give it to the Lord. Trust him. Let him work through this. Do what he commands you to do in the middle of that because he may use you in some way in that situation in dealing with them. But only do what he's leading you to do. And you know what? I'm going to tell you, we know when we're acting in the flesh and when we're walking in the spirit. We know it. And we can only walk in the Spirit on these things. I might not be able to deny my feeling when, when I've been wrong, and, and maybe I can't deny my desire for justice to be done, but when I take those feelings and I lay them as an appeal before God, I free myself from those feelings so that I can show the compassion that God wants me to show even towards my enemies. What happens to them? Well, that's now up to God. You see, that's up to Him. And I can just go on doing what it is that I've been commanded to do when it comes to them, so far as I am concerned. So here now, these, these martyrs, they cry out to the Lord for vengeance. And their cries are justified. They've been wrongly killed. They've been wrongly abused. They've been wrongly persecuted by sinful, evil men on this earth in that day. But what's God's response to their cries? Well, look at what he says in verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them. Huh. Well, he doesn't say anything first. First, he responds by giving them something. He gives them a white robe. Can you imagine? Here you are protesting evil. It's just happened to you. You're standing in front of the throne. Lord, they've, they've killed me. They've cut my head off. They've done all these things. And the first thing that Jesus does is he turns around and says, here, put this on. Put this on. Wow. That would sure stop the protest from as you try. What a white robe? What's, what's this all about? Well, what's God doing? What's he saying here in this, in this response? He's, well, what he's doing is he's shifting the focus from what man has done to them to what he has done for them. He's shifting away from what sinful, evil men have done to them and shifting their focus to what he's done for them. The white robe symbolizes the righteousness with which they are now clothed as his people, a righteousness that has been given to them only because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross at Calvary. And by doing this, what he's doing is he's subtly making them aware that even though sinful men have done this wrong to them and that these people deserve to be judged for it, but that Jesus has likewise endured suffering and death in order to secure the white robe of righteousness that they're now being given to put on. But reminding them also that 
the suffering and death Jesus endured to, dis, to, to secure that robe was, was at their own hands as well. That they were guilty. They don't deserve, we don't deserve, none of us deserve the white garment that he provides of righteousness. And they, like those who persecuted them, were equally as responsible for his persecution and for his death. And their hands held the nails that were pounded into his wrists and his feet at the cross, you see. Doesn't that put things in perspective when we're demanding justice? You know, it's one of those two in the Bible I hate. Yeah, remind me of the reality of things, you know. But the reality of it is exactly this. If justice were served, there'd be no hope for any of us. When we're beating our fists demanding that, that justice be served to somebody for doing wrong, well, you know what? Maybe we need to be careful because we don't deserve it either, and yet Jesus gave it to us. He gave it to us. Yeah, Jesus will hear our cry. He might even act on our behalf when something is wrong and when we're wronged, and he might even extract vengeance on those who've wronged us, but never forget that who and what you are is simply the result of his grace. You're no better than those that have, have wronged you. You may not have done the same thing, but you know what? We all did even worse because we did it to Jesus. And that like those that are responsible for offending and hurting you, you've offended and hurted Christ at one point in your life, and yet he forgave you much. He forgave you much. When you find yourself demanding vengeance, look down at the white robe that you are now wearing. Oh, you don't see it, but it's there nonetheless because you've been clothed in his righteousness that was purchased with his own blood, undeservingly given to you and to me, who caused his blood to flow by our sins. Remember that, because I think if you do, it'll put things in perspective once the emotions begin to settle down in your heart. So he goes on and he says in verse 12, um, I'm sorry, in verse 11 he says, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so, you know, after receiving the robe, the next thing God does in responding to cries is to simply tell them, rest a little bit more. Rest a little bit longer until both, you know, this is all comes in. In other words, God is telling them, chill out, take a break. You know, I got this. I got it. I got it. I'll take care of it. I'll, I'll deal with those who've done wrong to you and evil, but it's going to be a little while yet. There are still more Christians who, like you, have been appointed to suffer the same kind of fate. And this, again, sounds dark and ominous. People, you know, more people are going to die for Jesus. You know, wait a while because there's going to be more of your brother and sisters that are going to die for the faith. Yeah, yeah, it's a statement that gives reason for rejoicing. It means that there are still more people who are going to come to faith in Christ who haven't done it quite yet. More who will escape eternal damnation even though they'll have to suffer in the flesh. While the rider on the pale horse is, is at work reaping souls for Hades, God will also be at work reaping souls for heaven simultaneously. He hasn't finished saving people yet, even in this day. There will come a moment when the last human being will be saved. There will come a moment when God will shut the doors of the spiritual ark and no one else will be able to climb aboard and to find salvation. But that won't happen until he's reached every possible person that he can reach. And as such, he simply tells these martyrs, sit back and release, relax a while, judgment and vengeance. It's, it's coming. It will happen, but not yet. There's still more work to be done, more souls to be saved, maybe even some of the very people who were responsible for your persecution and death. You know, I can't help but to think when I look at this of, you know what, I'm really glad that God doesn't respond to the pleas of justice immediately. Because if he responded to the pleas of justice immediately, we wouldn't have the books of the New Testament that we have now written by the Apostle Paul. 
Because you know what? There was blood on that man's hands. He even says it. You know what? If he got what he deserved when the, I mean, people were afraid of him. You remember when they took him to Ananias? They said, Paul's going to come see you after he converted, right? And Ananias said, oh, Lord, he's the one that killed many of your people. You know, they, they didn't want to see Paul. They, he needed to be in a grave somewhere for all that he did. And yet God didn't respond to the cries because at, at heart he wanted Paul. He wanted Paul's heart. And Paul came to Christ because the Lord waited. Because he waited. Think about that person that's persecuting you at work or that person that's after you you know, about your Christianity. You don't know. You don't know what the future holds for them if the Lord will just tarry just a little bit longer. It's right to call for justice. But the timing of justice, man, we need to just leave that in the hands of the Lord because he knows, he knows what he's still doing and we don't. And then he goes on. Of course, he tells him that. And then he says in verse 12, I looked when he had opened the sixth seal, the final one, and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Jesus breaks open this sixth and final seal and and what now begins to flow is this cataclysmic progression of of seismic events on the earth and heavenly events that are taking place. As one commentator says it, he says, with the opening of the seal, it's like the world is nothing more than a rag doll that God is shaking and ripping apart at the very seams. First John says that the seals open and God takes that that God strikes the earth with a great earthquake. The implication of these words used here is it's it's an earthquake with a magnitude far beyond anything that the world has yet ever experienced, far worse than we can even begin to imagine. And the sense is that it will not simply be a regional earthquake, but an earthquake that will shake the entire earth. Now, a long time ago, people would have looked at that and said, "How can a global earthquake?" take place. How can that be? You know, it's interesting. If you start reading some of the scientific journals today and looking at this, they now realize how interconnected all of these various plates are on the earth. And when one shifts, how quickly all of it begins to shift, how quickly it can all go. Scientists by and large will say, would tell you it's not out of the question that that could happen worldwide once one begins. And you know what? Even if it were out of the scientific realm, can God do it? Absolutely. He can do it. So it may be hard for us to comprehend, but it's most certainly possible. And he tells us in that day, it's going to take place. You know, I remember um, when the uh, San, it wasn't San Andreas, uh, the New Madrid Fault went in uh, Missouri. It changed the direction. It's southern part of Missouri, and it changed the direction periodically of the Mississippi River. And it rang church bells as far away as Philadelphia. So tell me it can't go everywhere. Absolutely can This is the first thing he says. Then he says that the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. So John says that as the earth is being shaken, it literally causes the sun to be dark and literally turning it black and the the moon gets turned to, to red like blood. Such things are not inconceivable if you believe that such an earthquake is possible because such a high magnitude earthquake will do more than just shake the earth's surface, but such a movement could also break open the earth's crust with such violent force that it will spew vast quantity of dust and steam and gases into the upper atmosphere. It's interesting. Um, a number of years ago, I remember when I taught this the first time, right before I taught this, you know what, 12 years ago, I think it was, I said, you know, when I taught this, it was interesting. There was an explosion in New York, in the city, 
What had happened is a steam pipe ruptured underneath the sidewalks. It literally blew pavement up five to six stories high. Just a single steam pipe did that. Did that. Some of you guys also remember Mount St. Helens when it erupted. I actually flew up there. I was on my way up to Fort Lewis. And I remember when that thing erupted, the sky was pitch black as far as you could see. It just coated. So this is absolutely conceivable, given all the other events that will be taking place. Then he says in verse 13 that the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And, and, and here John's thirdly saying that as the earth's being shaken, it's being shaken so much that even the stars seem to fall from the sky like figs fall from a tree when they're shaken by the wind. The Greek word used for stars here in this verse is the word aster. And aster is not a word that we would commonly equate with, with a stellar object in the sky that we relate to as a shooting star or something like this. Uh, but, but what it really relates to is more closely to an asteroid or meteors. That's the nature of that word. And so the implication could be that during this phase of judgment, the earth will be pummeled by asteroids and meteors. And all the earth gets hit by all kinds of space debris all the time on a regular basis. By the way, hold your breath because I'm told that there's one the size of a football field that will pass in October that has a good chance of hitting the earth. Of course, when you see the probability of that, the good chance is like still like 46 million miles away or something like that. So... But you know what? We do see these events, and they do come to pass, but the idea here is that it'll be occurring on such a magnitude that it's not been seen before in the earth. And again, we don't know the exact details, but we know that this will be coming. And then finally, he says in verse 14, that the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. You know, what's that all about? Well, you know what? Fourth, he says, you know, there's this scroll-like looking thing taking place. There have been a number of suggestions to explain that away. Some suggest that all these intense seismological or intense events, stellar events that will be taking place, that it will produce a, a giant cloud of dust that will gradually spread across the sky and making it appear like the sky is being rolled up. Could be. Others suggest that these events combined will literally result in some kind of tearing apart or rupturing of the surrounding universe, that it has some kind of an effect physically on the universe itself. When verse 14 states, the sky receded as a scroll, the word used for receded is an extremely graphic term that literally means split apart, that the sky will literally be split apart. And based on that, a lot of creation scientists believe that it could very well be a description of the cataclysmic convulsion of the earth that literally tears the planet apart in such a way that it looks like the skies are being split open. We don't know. We don't know. But know this. When this seal is unleashed, these events are going to start coming in rapid succession on this earth, and this is going to be one massively terrorizing event. And look at the response to it, and we'll end with this. Verse 15, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid himself in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And we know who's able to stand, right? But these guys, what's the response to all this that's taking place? Are they turning to the Lord? Are they repenting? Are they falling before him, asking for his mercy? Are they looking to him? No, they're not. They're not. In fact, what it, it expresses here is this brazenness that they're going to run to his creation for protection. 
not to him. They're going to run to creation for protection. They're going to cry into the earth. And at the very least, what they're going to ask is, just kill us. Just let the rocks fall on us and these mountains and, and just kill us. And then that this torment will be over. As I said earlier, death doesn't bring the end to torment for those who are not in Christ. Repentance brings an end to the torment for those who are not in Christ. But these men and women in this day, these earth dwellers, they won't even bring themselves to doing that. They won't even humble themselves in that day. You know what, folks? The hardness of man's heart, it's truly an amazing thing. It really is when you think about it. Think about it. You're in the midst of this awesome and terrible display of God's power and judgment. Instead of turning to the Lord and repentance, they're instead going to be running from him, even trying to cover and hide themselves in the things of the earth that he's created. <laughs> if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Christ, let me encourage you to do this. Let me encourage you to do this because the created world your ability to protect yourself, even death will not give you the escape from God's judgment. Simply coming to him by faith is what gives you that escape. Don't run from the Lord, turn to the Lord. Come to him. God loves you. He doesn't want you to be under the yoke of his judgment. He doesn't want to bring these things to pass. And in fact, he wants you to escape his judgment and his wrath and his condemnation. He's made a way for you to find that escape, but you must turn toward him and not away from him. Turn toward him and the provision that he's made for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Confess your sin. Turn your life fully to him and, 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 and find that deliverance that, that he promises to bring to your life if you do that. But let me also warn you, if you've not yielded your life to Jesus Christ and the deliverance he offers to give you, should these events come to pass in your lifetime, you might in the end find that these verses are describing you. Describing you. Even though you might believe that if you find yourself in the midst of the tribulation that you'll accept him then, I would caution you to stop and read very carefully what these scriptures are saying. Because what they're indicating is that the vast majority of people, when these things come to pass, will not be turning to God, but will in fact instead be turning away from him and running from him. By doing that, they're sealing their own fate. You would be sealing your own fate. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul says that today is the day of salvation because tomorrow might very well be too late. Not just too late because you might die or because these things might overtake you, but too late because as the days go by and with every rejection of the opportunity to accept Christ, your heart will grow colder and it will grow harder over time. It's an established fact that as people age, the likelihood of accepting Christ begins to decline proportionally. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. And be warned, all of these things associated with the sixth seal, they're going to come to pass. They're going to happen. They will take place. In fact, the Bible is replete with scriptures that confirm these same events, telling us that they will happen in the last days. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, even Jesus himself in Matthew 24 gives us similar descriptions of these events. 
These things are going to happen. And the question that verse 17 leaves us with is an important one to think about. When that great day of wrath has come, who will be able to stand? Who will be able to stand? It's a good question to consider. And I believe it's a question that scripture gives us a clear answer to. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. 1 Peter 5.12 By Silvanus, and, and faith, our faithful brother, as I considered him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The answer is perfectly clear. Only those who have placed their faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ will stand in that day. We've placed our faith alone. We're going to be the ones who will stand in the face of this great wrath because Jesus already bore the wrath that we deserved. We don't have to face it. And ultimately, the wrath will be poured out in this day. It's not going to be poured out on those who believe. In fact, through our faith in him, it tells us in the scriptures that he will deliver us out of these things, not take us through these things. And for those who come to faith in that day, even though they might experience suffering and tribulation, they'll stand in an eternal sense. As God will deliver them from the eternal condemnation associated with his wrath. Today is your day of salvation. Today is the day that we can choose to take our stand. One final closing observation. Some speculate that the events being described here are actually the result of a nuclear exchange that takes place by the nations during this time. I don't disagree that a lot of what's being described, the sky receding like a scroll, could most certainly look like a mushroom cloud taking place, you know, and, and all the upheavals we see on the earth, all that stuff, you know, maybe. But even though these are clearly effects that a nuclear blast can cause, these verses make clear that when these events unfold, men and women are going to attribute this to who? To God himself. They're going to know. They may reject him, but they're going to know that he did it. That. So if this is describing the results of a nuclear blast, we also need to keep in mind that God is the one who holds the atom together. Right? It tells us in Colossians 1, he's the one that, that, that holds it all together, and he could certainly create. He doesn't need men to launch a missile to create an atom-like blast on the earth. But when God does things, he does them in a way that men see them and know that he did it. And in this day, these verses tell us that men will know that he did it. Amen? Amen. Are you in Christ? If you're not, let me just encourage you this morning. You don't need somebody to come up with a formula prayer for you. You need to recognize your sin. You need to recognize. I'm not talking about all your behaviors. I'm talking about you as a human being apart from God, that fallen nature that you have, to recognize that and to confess it to him and to ask him to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you of it. And then you need to choose that today you're going to follow him and to tell him that in your own words, Lord, I'm going to follow you. You're my God. You're my master. You're the only one I'm going to follow. You're it. And, and then to live that, to begin to walk that, and, and to understand that, that he's not asking you to make all kinds of changes to your own life, but he's asking you to be willing to begin making the changes that he'll bring to your life, because your life will look very different when you come to faith in Christ. You put that in your own words this morning, but don't wait. Today's the day of salvation, not tomorrow. And for those of us who know Jesus, let's stop making excuses 
for not telling our friends and neighbors. We don't need to be crazy people turning them off with all kinds of weird stuff, you know, and getting in their face and yelling at them. But let's make sure that we're not afraid to tell them about what Jesus has done for them and the escape that he's made from things that they can clearly see in the world around them is coming to some kind of a culmination. Give them hope. Give them the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.